So in 2015, Arlen Hamilton was sleeping on the floor of the San Francisco airport with nothing but an old laptop and a dream of breaking into the venture capital business. She was coming off of a year spent touring with bands as a manager, publishing her own magazine and blogging, and she started to get really curious about the world of startups. She just couldn't understand why so many of the people who were starting companies and getting funding were white and male. And she wanted a chance to invest in the ideas and people who really didn't conform to this image of how a founder is, quote, supposed to look. Problem was, she had no experience, no connections, no degree or track record. But that didn't stop her. So Arlen devoured everything that she could. She became a learning machine. And in 2015, she launched a venture capital fund, Backstage Capital, on a mission to minimize funding disparities in tech by investing in people of color, women, and the LGBTQ plus community. So Backstage has now raised more than $10 million, invested in more than 130 startups led by underrepresented founders, and also launched four accelerator programs in Detroit, LA, Philadelphia, and London. And in October of 2018, Arlen was the first black woman, non-celebrity, to be featured on the cover of Fast Company magazine. And in her new book, It's About Damn Time, she shares so many powerful moments and insights, sort of the backstory of this incredible journey, many of which we touched down into in today's conversation. So excited to share it with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive & June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive & June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important 
So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. You describe yourself as, I think I'm quoting it, kind of a weird kid. <laughs> yes, I think so. How so? I mean, to tell me in your own words. I'm sure people can relate to feeling uh, awkward and outsidery as a child. I think on top of that, I, I saw the world very different than, I, than a lot of my peers. And starting at in first grade, I can remember sitting, sit, like leaning against something on the, on the playground and just watching kids play and v- being incredibly interested in what they were feeling and what they were thinking and what their lives at home were like and just kind of following a character uh, at play and just really hoping that everything was okay and, and that they were. I just wondered if from a very early age, if your outsides matched your insides, if your smile matched your feelings, it was a fascinating to me. So that was that. And I used to hold office hours starting in the first grade. And then, you know, I was wearing six watches in the third grade because I became obsessed with time zones. And once I understood what time zones were, it was just like I had to, I had to be connected. And I've always felt this deep connection to people, to strangers and to people that I couldn't see. And, And, you know, the internet, of course, was like, uh, manna to me, <laughs> you know, it was just so incredible because even as a re- really young child, I wanted to talk to people from around the world. And so I think from that point of view, I also have a very strange hum- sense of humor that was developed very early. And it, the type that it is, it's observational and it's sarcastic and it's, uh, it's, it's kind of too real, you know, it can make an awkward situation more awkward or make it really, really comfortable it you know hit or miss and so I was sort of trying out my material on these kids and you know most of the kids were just like what are you doing (laughs) like who are you and I had a lot of negative connotations to it being weird you know I was bullied quite a bit from a young age all the way up to high school at the same time I could once you got to know me I could really get along with a lot of different types of people because I was never held back by offense of who I should be talking to or who is worth my time. I was always uh, with different groups. And so it was a uh, just a, a mixed bag of experience as a child. Yeah. I mean, I'm really curious what you said about, especially when you were much, much younger, you looking at kids outside and wondering if their insides match their outsides. That's an unusual perspective. Even as an adult, a lot of <laughs> adults aren't sort of like uh, wired towards that level of curiosity and inquiry beyond the surface. Yeah, I just, I remember it so vividly. I can see it right now. It was just, um, I was walking around as a, as a pretty, I guess, okay, normal child. I was participating. I wasn't sort of drawn back or anything, but I, it just dawned on me very early that people were not robots. And people were people. People were adults. People were children. They were teenagers. They were all elderly. We were all wired with something. And so I just always found it 
intriguing to figure out what a particular person was really thinking at the time that they were saying something. Because I knew myself, I knew that it was almost impossible for me to say something out loud and mean something else inside. It was like I, I had figured that out too. And I wondered, okay, am I the only one who thinks that? And then I always had these like these grand thoughts about, you know, I'd write this poetry in the fourth grade that was about the world crying, like the earth itself shedding tears. And all of this poetry came out of me. And that's how I thought. That's what my inner monologue was like. It was an interesting time. And then by the time I was 13, I was pretty much only, like outside of school, only talking to other adults, like talking to adults, because I, I found their conversation was uh, more interesting to me. I can relate in a lot of ways, actually. <laughs> um, yeah. But, uh, but it, it is, you know, it's interesting how so often it's, it's the kids who are, you know, different in some way, who maybe even consider themselves a little bit different, a little bit weird, mm -hmm. who at a young age so often that's devalued and you're attacked for it or bullied for it, you know, like you're socially outcast for it. And, and it's so interesting to me how, how very often those exact things later in life are the very things that become the greatest assets. Sure. I think about it like, you know, a lot of people at that age or that young age are, are just showing the first signs that they may be really interested in, and good at something. And there are people who are going to be tinkering with electronics or computers and, you know, they go on to do these things and they're trying to figure out the, ins the, the guts, the inner guts of computers. And then there are people who are going to be figuring out sports and others are going to be thinking through uh, theater and musicals and all of that. And, and I think I, mine was just people, other people. Like I was trying to figure out other people. And it might just be that I was on a track to, I probably should have gone to, co to college for like uh, philosophy or something like that. It probably is just that. And it certainly has served me well in any, anything that I've done as an adult when it comes to to different circumstances and turning different circumstances that could have gone terribly poorly into, into much better outcomes. Just that intuition to be so in tune with people, at least try to be. I'm, I'm no oracle, so I don't know exactly what people are thinking. I just care to know. And so that helps a lot. Yeah. I'm often curious about the why behind when somebody sort of like naturally gravitates towards really wanting to deconstruct somebody's behavior and know what's happening inside them. I'm often curious about the why behind it. You know, is it whether it's more of just an innate organic sense of curiosity about human beings and the human condition and behavior, or whether it's driven by vigilance, by concern, by a desire to sometimes mm -hmm. be able to figure people out so mm -hmm. that we can control a certain circumstance mm -hmm. because we need that sense of control. I'm curious with you, do you have a sense for what was underneath that? It's mostly curiosity. It just really is. I, I'm the kid who never stopped asking why <laughs> and all things. It really is. And it's concern. I have uh, a deep empathy, but it, I think it comes across. I've, I've been, you know, I've been reflected. I know that people, some people don't, they think it's too good to be true. They think I'm, I have an ulterior motive a, a lot of times. And I've been told by friends who've known me for 20 plus years, Every once in a while, they'll pull me to the side and say, you know, the reason this person reacted this way, this negative way, is because they don't realize that you really meant 
everything that you said and your outsides match the insides, right? Uh, so for me, it's, it's just a, it's just a dogged curiosity, almost an obsessive curiosity. So it's not necessarily a hundred percent positive. Some of it is compulsion. And I've come to realize that at 39, that I do have compulsive behaviors, but it's ultimately just, it's just what everybody's trying to figure out. I think it's like, why are we here? What is our purpose? All of that. Instead of have, thinking that as a midlife crisis, as I am today, I'm thinking of it as a five-year-old in the playground. Yeah. I mean, what an amazing lens to be able to sort of uh, to have for that also. And it's interesting also because it feels like that very quality has been the thing that you have at various sort of like moments along your journey in your professional life. It's always been central to it. Like almost like no matter what you have done in some way, shape or form, you can strip it back to that. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I mean, I started working when I was 15 to help with family bills and expenses. Um, but even at 15, when I was working at the first pizza joint that I worked at, you know, uh, I was just observing everybody that worked there. I was observing customers. I was making sure that the 750 an hour I was making or 625, whatever it was at the time, was compounded by the information that I was was gaining and, and the insights I was gaining. And this is at 15, knowing, knowing that somehow, some way I was going to own businesses as an adult and I needed to know, know the ins and outs of things. And I was sort of, I, I knew that I was doing it in stealth. I knew that I wasn't going to just go to the very frazzled owner of this franchise and, and ask him to learn at his feet. Instead, I was going to observe and learn more by what he was doing than what he was wanting to share with me. And then those types of things happened. It was very mundane, data entry, et cetera, et cetera. And then when I hit at 21, I hit on working with a Norwegian pop punk band. That That is probably the first time it really was obvious to me that the skill that I would have would just be being able to work with all types of people or many types of people under very unique circumstances and somehow keep it all together and, and be the glue there. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, you working with a Norwegian pop punk band was also not out of left field. I mean, there, there's clearly, you had a love of music yes. for your whole life. I know you share a story about an experience that never left you when you were 13 at a Janet Jackson concert. Yeah, it was my first concert. Janet was and still is my favorite musician, an artist. And I just, you know, starting at 12 or 13, just started loving everything about Janet. And she was coming to my town in Dallas. We couldn't afford a ticket at first, but um, my mom surprised me with, with, lawn, with a lawn seat. And then... Right before the concert, I, I won another seat uh, uh, closer to the to the stage, but not terribly close. But it was just like something something was making it so that I would be in that room or in that amphitheater, as it were. And I was there super early, and um, someone came up to me and this couple of teenagers that I had run into, and he was he seemed nice, but he was offering us front row seats, and I couldn't understand why. <laughs> so of course, again, I'm observing people, and I'm trying to suss people out. So I'm like always looking at the angle, right? So I, I after I told him that we were not going to fall for that, he smiled and like gave us a 
and he gave us an option. He said, you know, why don't you take these tickets? You keep your own tickets and go check it out. And if I'm wrong, if I'm lying to you, you can just come back to your seats here, right? So I thought that was pretty reasonable. And I took them up on it. And I told the other two older teenagers that they could trust that. I like that deal. And we started walking towards the front of this uh, 15,000 or so seat amphitheater in Dallas. And nobody stopped us. And we got all the way to the front. And there we were, front and center for the concert, the very first concert of my life, uh, for the artist who was my favorite at the time and continues to be. And a couple of things happened in that moment. First of all, the reason that happened is because at the time he was her husband and I didn't even know who he was at all because I wasn't looking at her personal life at 13. But it was her husband and he, he would do that from time to time. They're no longer married. But the couple of things I learned and figured out there were, A, I've got to do this, whatever this is. I've got to be part of this world of the, I don't know what, it, I don't even know what I'm describing, but I have to be part of this. And that turned into, as an adult, being on the road and being part of live music events and, and working on in live music. And the second part, but not the lesser uh, important part, or uh, less important part was looking back and yes looking back because i was in the front row and i was just so excited but looking back and just seeing a sea of people holding up lights and dancing and crying and dancing and crying and you know just but every it was such a diverse sea of people and it was so and not only um race which which really tripped me out because i couldn't believe all, like, frankly, I couldn't believe all these white people had shown up to this black woman's concert and paid good money to be there and then danced to every song. I just thought there was something so powerful about that when I hadn't really seen that out in the real world. And then just across orientation, like at that time, I didn't know I was gay, but I just remember knowing in my the religion that I was in at the time, I remember knowing in my mind, like practically homosexuality was wrong. That's what I had been taught. But then looking and seeing these two, I remember very clearly seeing these two white men who were clearly a couple, holding hands, kissing, you know, just pecking, you know, so excited to be there. And they just seemed so normal and non-dangerous. And I thought, what? why am I supposed to not like that again? What's so, I, okay. And, you know, I just kind of put that in a folder to return to sometime. And that was one of the, th those sort of symbols uh, started collecting. And then, and then, yeah, it, it made a lot more sense a few years later as to why I didn't have any issue with that. And also because I just think I'm um, a kind person. So I didn't ha have the same thoughts that this religion did. So th that, that day and that night were so impactful to my life that they're the reason that I got into live music, which was a huge part of my life. They're the reason that I started a music magazine, which was a huge part of my 20s. This concert, this one moment was the reason that I found the courage to eventually leave that religion that I was in. It's the reason that I eventually, I just I felt so confident in a certain way, not in every way. I was, still had body issues, but like as a black woman. I didn't feel any sort of subservience to anyone as I thought, you know, other people might've felt they should. And that, that was taken away that moment when I saw this black woman just owning this arena or this uh, amphitheater. And it was like, okay, 
you know. So the, that night, I mean, couldn't have. I mean, hopefully, you know, if there's ever a, a, a movie about it, <laughs> fifty years from now, they 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 get that part right. Because man, that was such an impactful time. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me, in a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. That sounds familiar. You should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. It seems like on so many levels, right? And, and I'm fascinated. I've asked a number of people this over, over the years. Fascinated by the, the concept of sliding doors. You know, if a particular mm-hmm. moment hadn't happened 
and, and I'm always curious whether when people experience something that is so fundamentally transformational in their lives, kind of like opens a door to something new, whether you ever reflect back on like, what if that night, what if never happened? What if that, that one person who you didn't even know who this person was, you didn't trust that person enough to like take a shot and like walk up to the front row? Yeah. I think about those moments. I think about that a lot in my, cause I reflect too, almost too much. <laughs> so I think about it a lot that moment and other moments. I, you know, some could argue that there's a spirituality there. There's a, there's some sort of fate that's going there. I, I don't subscribe to that particular, but I, I also feel like things happen for a reason. So that's probably my version of that. I feel like th things happen for a reason. I was supposed to miss that flight. I was supposed to be in this room or be in that situation, even if at the time it's tough. And of course, that's one way of just being okay with it and, and not falling apart about it. But honestly, that's how I feel. And I think about sliding doors, butterfly effect, all of that. It's so fascinating because first of all, who knows? Who knows what the answer is? So it's a, it's a puzzle you can continually think about, which is fun. And then second of all, it has to be, it has to be the case that choosing this door or that door, putting these shoes on versus th that shoes, and you step on the pebble and you can feel this one, but you can't feel that one, you know? There has to be some rhyme and reason to how things play out. And I think about that when I think about my wife, Anna. If I hadn't decided to post on my blog that I was gonna take office hours for like uh, anyone who was starting a blog or any kind of creative thing, and if she hadn't decided that I was worth her time and signed up to it six years ago, would we have ever known each other, known of each other? And I think she, she would have known of me, but it would have been in the background and I would have never have met her. And then this incredible journey that we've been on the past six years wouldn't have happened. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I, I love, I think some people think, well, there's no value in, in thinking about that stuff, but I'm, I am kind of fascinated by those moments also and sort of thinking about like what, what would things have been different? Not necessarily worse or better, but just like how my things have been different and how much was that truly completely outside of my control and how much, you know, was it about the actions that were taken leading up to that moment? Yeah. You, you mentioned a couple of things. One is that became your entree into the world of music. And you also mentioned the magazine. And so you ended up, it sounds like there are sort of different things happen, happening in a, in a bit of an overlapping way for a number of years for you moving forward, sort of like once you're out of, out of high school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was, uh, I graduated high school. I was, I did really well in school academically. Like I could keep up even if I wasn't necessarily there every day or doing the homework because I could test really well. And it was just not challenging to me in a lot of ways. Some things were, I'll tell you what, algebra and on and math, I forget about it. <laughs> you could go somewhere else. But a lot of things that were just kind of in general. And I constantly was kicked out of class for asking too many questions. And so I just was very bitter towards that whole thing. And I didn't see the value in signing up for four more years of being told where to be on a certain hour. And I just didn't, and also, was like, well, who's going to pay for it all? You know, there's scholarships, but who's going to really pay for all of the expenses and who's going to help with rent? And there were all those things I was thinking about at 18. And so I didn't go to college, went to like a few community courses at community college, which I enjoyed photography and business and German, and which is interesting because my wife is German and I've always somehow been drawn there too. So I did, I did that. And then, uh, got it 
many, many jobs in data entry because I could type fast. One of my mom's claims to fame. Yeah. And um, I'm listening to music to pass the time. And then this Norwegian pop punk band called Golden Boy pops up on whatever I'm listening to. And I, li I think their, their music is cute. You know, I think it's catchy and cute. And I'm like, what is this? It's different than American radio. It's just a different feel to it. So I go on AOL and I ask them if I can book some shows for them, basically. That's a short version of it. And they agree to that. They don't, I don't think they believed it. I'd have to ask them. I'm going to interview them soon and find out. But they agreed to it. And then um, I ended up just teaching myself how to book a tour across the country with phone books and paper and I don't even think Google Maps was a thing at the time or something that I knew about, but just by calling people over and over and over and over again and, and, and learning and booked a, a summer tour, two summers in a row, brought them over, was their tour manager, left the data entry job. We had no money, but we, we made it work and it was fun. And then um, a couple of years after that, I, I started a music magazine. And same thing, had no money, didn't know how to do it, taught myself to do it, got people involved. It was all, always about getting the right people involved. You know, that's where the intuition about people came into play again. It's just like, who do you get involved in this? Who can elevate what you do? I had a lot of friction, I think, with the magazine because the person who I guess you could consider as a co-founder, I, although I didn't know the terminology back then, we did not get along very well but we made an amazing amazing content it was so weird like we argued like crazy but we the finished product was always so wonderful that we just said okay i guess we're gonna do this again <laughs> um but it was just a, a wonderful experience and and taught me a lot and then had the magazine for a few years off and on yeah i kind of went back and forth into those two worlds and th in the middle of all of that in my 20s, I had a, a five or six year blog called Your Daily Lesbian Moment that spoke to uh, what, what I called lesbian and lesbian adjacent women, mostly women, some men, 50,000 uniques a, uh, a month who would listen to me talk about daily stuff about being a lesbian. So all of that was my 20s. It was like these different indie musicians I'd work with and then the blog and then the magazine and living mostly in California, but bouncing around like to Columbus, Ohio and Chicago and different places. And then early thirties is when I uh, really start making a living in live music, really take it. Not that I wasn't taking it seriously before, but finding a way to really make it a career rather than just something, a gig here and there. Yeah. I mean, what, what's, so fascinating about that also is that you have a fearlessness. I don't know if you would label it fearlessness rather than you just see something that can be done that sounds interesting to you. So you, you just, you know, go and do it. But, you know, somebody who basically says, oh, this band is kind of cool. It would be neat to bring them here and travel across the country and manage them and like run the entire thing. Oh, I, I've, I've never actually done that before. And instead of you saying, ah, oh, I can't do it, or I have to go and, you know, intern with someone or train with someone, you're just like, there's something in you that says, I'll figure it out. Yeah. Um, and that seems to be like the perpetual thing that keeps repeating itself of, you know, a fearlessness along with a confidence that you have the ability to just figure it out along the way. 
Yeah, I, because I, I think I don't think higher of myself than other people. I just think higher of other people than they may of themselves. Right. I think that we all can do that. And I just to me, that's the default. I'm always um, a little I have to kind of recalibrate when someone points out that it's different because it just seems isn't what are we doing if we're not if we're not taking chances and I don't know. I just feel like there's just there's just so many years that we have here. So why not go for things that we want and experience things so that we can so that we can not feel too much regret. So there's always going to be regret and you're always going to want more always, I think. And the more the older I get, the the more I know that. But I can look back on f- almost 40 years and say, you know, circumstances I I would have loved different circumstances a lot of times because I was poor for 35 years. But like the things that I went after and that I attempted and even the things that just failed, just blatantly failed. I'm so, so happy that I tried. I'm so happy that I tried. Yeah. The, um, the blog you mentioned also, it wasn't just about you creating content and putting it out for a community. I mean, this really became something that was a genuine community. I mean, you start to say, Hey, what would happen if I actually, you know, there are all these people, reading my stuff and there are all these people commenting and sharing in the comments. And what if we started featuring people and what if we started creating ways to essentially make this a place where people could get to know each other and eventually become community, eventually become friends, eventually become lovers, eventually become partners. So it's amazing that you, I mean, you step into that again, not having done it, but saying, I'll figure it out. And then it taps into you really being able to share who you are fully and at the same time that lifelong curiosity about people and how they relate to each other and how they build relationships on every level it's like it becomes this this engine to just bring it all together at the same time yeah it was uh, i mean i've i think that's a really amazing way of describing my blog and it's one of those things where i think about fondly very often and for so many years it was my life but I feel like because of my new world that I'm in it often gets put to the side as not as important as it was and it really was just such a huge part of my life but also this was a time your daily lesbian moment blog this was at a time when most people didn't see themselves reflected on television or movies or if they did it was sort of underground or it was indie and if if and if they did it if they did it was also they were they would watch the movie or they would see the thing or know the person and have these people that they could look to but they were still going home to their like isolation they didn't have the communities in person for a lot of people and that's what I think resonated so much it started out um, I started it by accident actually So I won't take so much credit, but I I did start it by accident after having a really bad breakup, thinking I'm either going to like burn this down, (laughs) like I'm going to go crazy, uh, or I can do something. I'm going to just like talk about it online. I'm just going to talk, post something, you know, and that that just turned into more and more people wanting to see what I posted and then my take on it. They liked that little blurb that I would put with it, and that became something. And then I saw, oh, kids, thousands of people are watching this now. And over the years, 
so many people were just talking to each other organically in comments or uh, the MySpace days is where it started or in my, MySpace. I said, man, there's so many people who are just like isolated and so many people who are finding their friendships here. It was kind of like Reddit before Reddit was a thing. It was like a, a, a part of it. And so I said, why don't I just see if I can do some matchmaking and not just girlfriends or wives at the time, girlfriends, because we couldn't get married, but what about just friendships and business partners and, and kind of just connect people like I've always wanted to. And that turned into like a very bustling part aspect of the blog. And to this day, I mean, as recently as yesterday, I had someone say that they read the blog 15 years ago, 12 years ago, 10 years ago, and they got this, this and that from it. In fact, the person yesterday was at a major company that had me come in and speak um, virtually. And I didn't know that when they, when they asked me to come. And at the end, she said, you know, I, I read your blog when I was going through a really a time where I didn't really know myself and it was so helpful. And I'm thinking this woman is like running the show here. She's like an executive at this company and I wouldn't even have, thought about like where the people are today where what are they thinking today but I get these messages in, in the dms all the time because pe- the profile is a little bit higher so people can find me again and they're just like I, you know I I was in high school when I first started listening to you and now I have a family and my wife and I do this that and the other you know and I'm just like wow so that tells me that what I'm doing today no matter how difficult it can be at times I should keep going and that you can do things that really have a, a, a sustained impact. You're doing that. You're, um, as as you shared, you really start to sort of like move up and 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 create your own thing in the music world. You're humming along, making a name for yourself in that space, also. And then something happens because you, I guess, get curious in some way, shape, or form, and get exposed to this other world, the world mm-hmm. of venture capital, the world of tech entrepreneurship, the world that, that most people associate with Silicon Valley. And a light bulb goes on. Yeah, I, was, I had worked my way up. This was post-magazine, post-Your Daily Lesbian Moment. I had made the decision to you know, do more in music and, and had started really working on some major concerts and major events with artists that are well-known. And I was a production coordinator and a road manager and all types of things. And I thought I would be just, my, my path would be, I thought my path would be, I would be, you know, one of the, the earliest and most powerful black women in live music at arena level, stadium level tours. And that was exciting for me going into my 30s. But again, I'm still really, really living paycheck to paycheck, and paycheck to paycheck didn't mean on, you know, with with any sort of certainty. It was just, it was just you're out there, and I had the experience with your daily lesbian moment and those connections, and I said, you know, I'm seeing people like Ellen DeGeneres and Ashton Kutcher and Justin Bieber, and Troy Carter, who used to manage Lady Gaga as a black man who did that. I'm seeing them make investments in a place called Silicon Valley, and they're they're investing in these small companies, these small tech companies. What are they doing? So I was like following the trail, and I said, "Wow, well, maybe I should start a company based on the matchmaking that I did with your daily lesbian moment." So I had right before I stopped really blogging in earnest, I had 
created a matchmaking site as MVP, really, that was called Juliet and Juliet. One of my readers named April came up with that name, and I just loved it, and I kept it. So I said, what if I make Juliet and Juliet like a full-on, and this was at a time where like dating sites were pretty hot. And I said, why don't I make Juliet and Juliet a thing? That could be really interesting. So I started researching about that, about raising money for it, about putting together a team. I did all that very innocently. And that's when I came across, so it was like these, these investors who were from my world, sort of, I was, you know, bottom rung in their world, but these investors, they, were, they, they drew my attention to what tech companies were to begin with. And then I said, well, why don't I start? And I researched. And then in that research, I found out 90% of all venture funding, all investment funding for, for high-growth tech companies, really, goes to straight white men in the United States. And I was like, okay, I'm black, I'm gay, and I'm a woman. Hmm, what's going to happen next? <laughs> so I thought, I thought, well, that's odd. You know, like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, I was just looking at it very practically, and pragmatically, I was just like, this doesn't make any, any business, good business sense. It, 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 it flies in the face of what I've just learned venture capital is supposed to be and to do. How can you call yourself the most risk-tolerant part of the asset class of private equity and tout yourselves as just, you know, kingmakers and queenmakers if you're not looking everywhere? I, I thought of all people, venture capitalists should be looking everywhere they possibly could because they were going to prove big brother private equity wrong. But instead, it was just as homogenous, if not more, than private equity. I know more people of color who have high positions in private equity as a, as a full asset class, hedge funds, mutual funds, all that, than I know in venture. So that stopped me in my tracks, and I said, okay... I could probably hack my way, because I've done that before. I could probably hack my way to raising. But then what? I'm now in a system that wasn't built for me and is not really uh, made, like really accepting of me to, uh, as well. And what, what happens next? If, if, I, if, I, if I don't do perfect out the gate, am I, am I going to be stopped in my tracks? Am I going to be pushed out? And then on top of that, even if I could do well, where's my competition? Where, where am I seeing myself? I, I, I can play with all kinds of people. Like, I want to see di diverse competition. That's what makes this worth it. So I made a decision in 2014, after dabbling in both for a few years, I made a decision in 2014, I would have been 33, to um, go all in on a fund that would invest in people of color, LGBTQ, and women just like me who were starting companies that, and they were looking for venture capital, they were looking for outside capital. And the reason it was venture and not angel and venture and not uh, philanthropic and venture, it was just all the research I had done for years led me to this path of this is going to be the best chance I have of accomplishing the thing I want to accomplish, which is to get more funding and resources into the hands of underrepresented, underestimated people. That's it. It wasn't that venture was this this calling of mine. It wasn't that it was, I, I held it in such high regard. It just, to me, seemed like a very apt tool to do the thing that I wanted to do. And it was so ripe for disruption because they had become complacent. 
And that's like perfect. <laughs> that was perfect for me. It was like, okay, that's where I'm going to get in. And so I, um, I tried for years to, to get any sort of backing. And, and Brad Feld actually was one of the first people to take my email and to respond to me and to make introductions. I don't think at the time he quite knew how important it was to have a fund like this. I don't know if he quite understood that I would be the one to do it, even if he understood the, the mission behind it. But he sort of does what I think a good venture capitalist does, which is like leave yourself open to, to curiosity and to flexibility and to being wrong and making introductions and being open to like, prove me wrong, prove me wrong. It turned into quite a relationship where he became an investor in our fund later down the line. In the meantime, couldn't get anything. And then September 2015, things changed. I found my first investor who was an angel investor, a woman in Silicon Valley named, uh, actually she's in San Francisco, named uh, Susan Kimberlin. And she kind of she, too, was in this boat of, I don't know exactly what you're wanting to do, and I don't know if you can do it, if you're the one, but you're going to do something. Like, I'm going to back you, because <laughs> you're going to do something. So she backed me with my first sort of seed money to, to get into operations and the first check I could write to someone else. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Brad's been a guest on on the show in the past, and he's uh, he's an, an unusual, I feel like, voice in the world of venture capital, in the world of VC. And he is he's very conscious and conscientious and sort of like broad and open-minded in the way he lives his life also and, and the way that he... Um, there's an interesting parallels with you also. You know, like Brad's been blogging daily for years yeah, and sharing, you know, and, and he's not blogging about the world of venture capital and business and entrepreneurship. It folds into it, but he blogs, he shares very, very personal, deeply intimate things. You know, he went, he's gone through long windows of really deep clinical depression that he has shared, you know, like along the way. 
So there were, there were interesting parallels between you and him about your decision-making and your willingness to be transparent and honest and real and open and and share technologies and write and express yourself in ways to, to you know, at the end of the day, not necessarily to build an audience, but to help tell the story of, you know, like we're all in this together. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's why we're getting along so well. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine. The, the world of VC is an interesting place. The, in a very, very, very past life, I was actually a private equity lawyer. I started out at the SEC as an enforcement attorney and then jumped into a large firm in Manhattan for a very short stint in private equity. So got exposed to the structures of this world, which if you don't live in it, are really strange and bizarre. But you know, like fundamentally, you have somebody who comes along, usually they've come out of some sort of really fancy degree and then they've worked in like the biggest institutions and they built a reputation and a pedigree and then, you know, earn the quote right or privilege to then go to a whole bunch of wealthy people and say, give me your money and I'm going to pool your money into a fund, you know, and then I will use my brilliance and my experience and all of this to choose the companies or the founders who I believe are going to build the next big things. And, and like you said, this is a system which has for a long time been largely white, largely male, and largely comes out of a background of degrees and pedigrees and experience. So when you come along and sort of like look at this and say this system is, is broken and there are people like me, that you're also saying it's not just that they're not represented in the group of founders who aren't being seen and funded, but also in the group of funders, like the group of people who are showing up to actually choose these people to receive mentoring and money and backing. Yeah, that's right. And there are, let me be clear, there are many, many black venture investors who came before me in this 70, 75 year venture life cycle. The issues are that A, or one, it's not enough. It's not representative. Even even if it's a few, which there are, it's not enough. And some groups have just said, okay, that's enough. Like we're not being uh, prejudiced because they're, you know, we know this one guy over there. It's just not enough. And so when you have not enough, you have some people. Some black people are getting funded because you have some people who are funding black people, but you don't have enough. It's just, it, you know, and so that's a, a major thing. Another thing is that I came into this without any institution that I was afraid would be upset with me or that I would be flying in the face of. Like, I'm okay with people not getting it. I'm okay with people th- having their personal opinions about me personally. All of that. And I think that's the kind, the kind of person who had to come in and do what I've done. I don't think the exact results that I am getting could have been accomplished by someone coming in and and, and knocking nicely and, 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 and tapping the door lightly. And so I came in just ridiculously authentically myself and didn't have an agenda that was about shaming anyone or making it difficult for anyone. I really came in with the agenda of, hey, let's shine a light on the fact that this is ridiculous. Like, there's not enough funding going to black and brown founders and to women. Like, how can you have almost half-half of the population 
half of the population, more than half actually, be women. And they get less than, at the time, I think it was like less than 2% of funding. And I don't think it's changed that much in the last few years. It just doesn't make any sense to me. And as you know, as I've said, things have to make sense to me. They have to kind of fit and make some sense, and, and it didn't. And so I think uh, I, I'm grateful to the people who have come before me. I'm grateful to my peers. My role in all of this, I think, is just to be really noisy and to be unapologetic and to say some of the things that others cannot say because others have gone through these these links of let me go through years of training let me go through this exact school let me have this network and let me get to this point so I can have power within a, a structure and I think that is just as important and worthy of, of you know merit than as what I'm doing but I think we're equal in that and, and no way is better or worse. So we both have to be sort of, both types of, of groups have to be going at this issue at the same time in a different way. Yeah, you, you also brought up something interesting. When you were thinking about Juliet and Juliet, so that, that would have been you in the role of a founder, right? Yes. That one of your questions in your mind was, well, what if I fail? And, mm-hmm. and I think it's fascinating because in the context of Silicon Valley, there's sort of a culture of failure porn, right? Where it's expected that a certain, that a lot of people who start companies, the vast majority, it's not gonna work. And that, you know, in the venture capital world, the vast majority of money that's given out to people is gonna be lost. And you're just betting on a small number of companies really succeeding. So there's an expectation of failure and that that's not really looked at as a mark against you in that world, mm-hmm. providing you don't just always fail all the time forever. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious, in the context when when you bring up that question you say like well what happens if i fail were you also in in your mind is is that in the context of just your average founder or was that in the context of a black woman who's going into this space and will i be judged differently a black woman i mean we know we've seen that books statistics that 50 to 80 percent of companies fail quote unquote they just don't work and that's kind of the point. You have to try. Uh, if Elon had stopped at his failures, we wouldn't have his rockets. You know, we, if Steve Jobs had stopped at his failures, we wouldn't have what we have right now. So it's just a known factor. But by and large, black women, and I know th- thousands of them, I guess, at this point, <laughs> uh, we know that black people, black women, we know that, and I know personally that I am... Uh, the expectation is that I will fail and it will be a, I told you so and there will be no room for redemption there will be no r- room for uh, benefit of the doubt I see it happen all the time I've seen I've had it said to my face and I know from talking to hundreds and hundreds of black founders and thousands of black founders actually that it's the case but I look at it more like yeah we've invested in at this point 130 companies plus I and mean, we just signed a term sheet this week so we'll you know, that number is great, is growing. Many of these companies are not going to make it past third year, or if they have, may not even make it past, you know, fifth year. That's okay. And it should be okay, because that's what this whole world is. This is what this whole ecosystem is tolerant of. And there shouldn't be a second uh, set of rules. But there are, they're not said out loud, but they are. And the, the goalpost gets moved so often. So often I've, I've seen it firsthand, I've seen it through others. 
And so another part of my role is, I think, you know, self-appointed, is to myth bust and to make some sense of things to people. If someone is being taken down publicly or taken down for their company not making it or any someone in our portfolio even, I'm the first person to stand up and say, wait a second, let's look at the real statistics and you let me let me see your list of white men who haven't failed. I want to see that list because I've got to meet this superhero that doesn't exist. You know, so that that is really something that I think is important not to, to forget and to, to not to miss. And so I try to make that known in different ways as much as I can. When you think about what you're doing, so you start what becomes Backstage Capital and then Backstage Studio to support your portfolio companies, that's growing. You end up, you know, as you said, it took a lot of work. And I imagine it still takes a lot of work to continue to raise money to go into this fund to then turn around and fund what you just shared was now like over 130 companies, founders or groups of founders to do this. When you think about, I guess I'm curious what success looks like to you in the context of that. Is it and, and just on a personal level, because this is a huge, huge, huge effort. What does success look like in the context of all this? Success is now. Success to me is five years ago, I was living at an airport. And I didn't know if I was going to eat on any given day. And today, we've invested in more than 130 companies across the country. We have... I have raised about $15 million bit by bit by bit by bit and deployed much of that into companies. On top of that, we've seen and talked to thousands of companies who now have more information than they had before they met us. And these companies, some of them are doing poorly, some of them are doing okay, and some of them are thriving, absolutely thriving. And they will go on, some will go on to create, you know, they're already creating hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. Like, we know that. And then the, the, the next 20 or 30 years will just be this, these seeds being blooming, right? And then it'll go past me and it'll go past that. So success to me is we've already reached it. Success to me is someone who is a black woman in Atlanta saying, I can start a company and I didn't know I could. And this happens all the time where people reach out to our team or to me directly and say, I didn't know that this was an option for me. I didn't know that generational wealth was an option for me. I didn't know that I had ownership. I could have ownership in something that was based on my talent and I didn't have to work for someone else. Or I didn't know that this particular job that I lo would love to have was even available at someone else's company. These types of soft skills, if you will, uh, and soft metrics are success and they will continue to flourish. I also know uh, as much as I knew in 2014 when I had no money that I would invest in 100 companies led by underrepresented founders by 2020 and I saw it as clear as day, as clear as I could see the past. I know that I will be incredibly wealthy and before my, I'm turning 40 this year and before I'm 50 I'll, I'll have more money than I'll ever be able to spend and it'll be because of these founders. And that money will be recycled and repurposed and reused for more investment and more catalyzing for the rest of my life. Mm. When you think about two more quick questions, the moment that we're in right now, is that changing anything for you? I think it is. I think people are just 
you know, we talk about being woke or not. I think people are just just pulled, yanked out of bed right now. <laughs> There's no way to be uh, napping at this point. And I think everyone is paying attention and everybody kind of is reflecting. And some people are not, but most people are reflecting. And I'm already seeing the change. There's more access. There's It's making more sense. Things are making more sense, even though such a sacrifice had to happen and has to happen for that to be, to be the case. People are getting it now, I think. And I think it's going to make a big difference. I really do. I can feel it. It's different than anything I've ever experienced. And I think that's the case all around. And I can see that it's going to make a big difference. Mm -hmm. So as we sit here, it feels like a good place to come full circle as well. In this container of the Good Life Project, if I offer out the phrase, to live a good life, what comes up? Uh, to live a good life, you know, to wake up every day working on something that fuels me and makes me feel fulfilled and to be catalyzing people. That's the word, that's the buzzword for around here. It's like, how can what I do catalyze someone? And that's the, that's the benchmark. It also includes being able to provide for my mother and my brother and his children and my wife and to have an RV and have a beach house and sort of uses the next half or so of my life on enjoying the fruits of my labor. Mm, sounds pretty good. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E. T-Y-P-E.com or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.